The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Good morning. This is Carol Bossert. Thank you for tuning in to Museum Life. Uh, as uh, many of my listeners know, an area that uh, of museum work uh, and museology that continues to intrigue me is the both the proliferation of museums around the world, uh, particularly in uh, Southeast Asia and the Middle East areas where I have had the uh, uh, the great fortune to work over the years, and uh, it raises a lot of questions for me uh, working in different cultures. And one, um, the question of how museums sort of keep and and help and even create. Uh, national narrative. Uh, we've talked to Teresa Bergman several weeks ago about how that uh, works in the United States and in uh, uh, exhibiting patriotism. It's always fascinating to me to get out of my own um, culture and a look at uh, another culture at asking that same question and, and I gain new perspective every time. I'm also fascinated with how well or perhaps not so well uh, Western museum philosophies and perspectives, approaches from everything to the science of museums to curation to exhibit design uh, translates into different cultures and different Different countries, and it's this latter that has been of concern to me sometimes uh, in perhaps over uh, selling or perhaps bringing in some perspectives or some assumptions that we have here in the West that uh, that that cloud our vision in being able to embrace and really understand museums in different countries. So that is why I was so thrilled to be able to read uh, the book published by our uh, guest today. Uh, Shayla Bati is the author of Translating Museums. Uh, the subtitle of that, of course, caught my eye when, she, when it said a counter-history of South Asian museology. And this is a book published 
published uh, about a year ago by Left Coast Press, and is and I recommend uh, you all to get a copy of that. Uh, Shayla is currently uh, an honorary research fellow at the Department of Anthropology, University College London, where she also gained her PhD. Uh, and over the past decade, she has conducted ethnographic research on museums in India and Pakistan, and her doctoral research focused on the Lahore Museum in Pakistan, and that's what we're really going to be talking about today. Uh, Shayla has a wonderful uh, museum narrative and career narrative herself, and so I'm going to let her describe that for you. And so, Shayla, welcome to the show today. Hello, Carol. Good morning. Uh, Shayla, could you please share a little bit about your career trajectory? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm basically I'm an anthropologist by training, and my interests over the years have um, have kind of inclined towards material culture and visual culture. And through that, I ended up studying museum ethnography um, for my masters. And it's during that time that I actually um, realised that there hasn't been much written about South Asian museums. I was um, my one of my tutors at the time, Christopher Pinney, he suggested I should go and um, investigate museums in South Asia and that was it and I, I kind of um, went to the library, did some research and there was nothing, well next to nothing written on it. So um, that led me to go and do my initial research in India and I went to four different places and examine the colonial um, museums and the post-colonial museums. And I think you're quite lucky in South Asia still to have colonial museums as as they were almost. I mean, I know some people over there wouldn't like me to say that, but it gives you an insight into that, um, that aspect and history of museums and connect that to Western museums. So um, that's how it all developed. And then um, having having roots in, roots in Lahore, um, I kind of realised, well, there's a there's a colonial museum there, and I've never really paid much attention to it, and so that's where it, where it led to me um, going and researching the Lahore Museum for my for my PhD, um, and subsequently I did um, I did a postdoc and um, carried on the research, and then I've had a I had a small career break, and then I wrote the book that you mentioned. Fabulous, fabulous. So, so you live in London, but uh, yes. you're, you're uh, but you also uh, maintain a, a home in Pakistan. Yes, yes. My um, one part of my family is from there, so um, I've I have links there also. So, yes. Wonderful, wonderful. So, uh, why don't you then help us set uh, sort of set the stage? Uh, for our discussion today, I, I dare say uh, that um, some of our listeners have not had the uh, uh, the opportunity to visit Pakistan. Uh, uh, so, could you just give us a little? I mean, you, not a you know not a history of Pakistan, but yeah. but just uh, tell us a little bit about Lahore, and then uh, we can it will give us some context for understanding the museum. Okay, I mean, um, I think everyone hears about Pakistan, it's not really out of the news. So we all have an image of what it's like. Um, but counter to that, I think there's a living, I mean, it is a living society and Lahore is one of the older cities in, in Pakistan. Um, and it has a rich history. I mean, it, 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 we've, got, we've got Sikh heritage, we've got the British colonial period. 
Um, we've got the Mughal period, and before, I mean, that's when it really developed into the city. Um, the walled city, there's an old walled city, and then you've got, I mean, the city is expanding now, so you have you have a real mixture in, in all aspects, I mean, in architecture, in the culture, and and these sort of discussions take place every day as to where are, where the culture should be going and what sort of what should be identity and what is culture. I think all these things impact it. And I mean, even though it is it it, it is in a Muslim well Muslim nation, Islamic cultures there, but people are aware of other other societies and other influences. And these things are are evident. I mean, in places like the museum. And I think that's that's the kind of um, that's kind of background. Maybe some people forget sometimes, but th these places, Pakistan isn't isn't a terrorist nation as such. There are, I mean, there are other aspects to it, and so people who haven't been to Lahore, it's, um, they should visit. But um, it's 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 an old historic. It's one of the old historic cities of of Pakistan that's been influenced by different traders and different. Um, cultures that have invaded. So any any kind of culture that invaded northern India passed through it because um, Lahore was the capital of the Punjab, the United Punjab. So this is before partition of India in 1947. So it's a it's an interesting place and a and a vibrant place. Yes, and and in your book, I was taking you you uh, uh, write uh, in in very visual language. Uh, of course, that's your your uh, your background and expertise, yeah. and and so I could I could actually see and feel uh, and almost smell the city streets and uh, look at look up at the horizon and just sort of this this very rich. Uh, 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 almost sensual um, yeah. experience, and and certainly, if I visited, I would uh, want to to see the museum and and understand and hopefully have a better understanding of of that culture. Uh, I know we'll have a chance to talk a little bit more about the uh, the the people who live in Lahore and the people that visit the museum. But for right now, perhaps we can uh, just again set the stage a little bit more and talk about the the history of the museum uh you know when it when it started uh why it was started uh and then uh, also how the collection was the earliest collection was amassed right um well the museum was set, i mean it goes back to the british period so it's its own date it's um the earliest that if i say the museum has three stages and that's what i describe in the book it's the easiest way to look at its history um, and basically it, start, it was set up in 1856 and at that time it was in an old Mughal um, uh, Baradari, which is um, basically a Mughal summer house. Um, and this was part of the East India Company at the time and they were interested in, in setting up a network of museums across the parts of India they controlled. Um, and this was twofold, really. I think people at that time, the officers, also travellers coming to India, they were collecting at the time. They were interested in exploring the culture and understanding what sort of place this is. And a museum was um, almost the easiest way to kind of uh, put, put across to the officers, also to the people there, maybe at that time not to the people, but certainly the company and its officers, as to what what holds, I mean, what what is the culture? Who are the people? What kind of 
things exist here and this was the way of teaching them. So I think there was a desire to classify and order India and the museum easily represents, I mean visually represents a culture. And so at that time that's when the museum was um, was set up and one of the initial problems, and I, I mean it might still be relevant, is that um, there wasn't um, there wasn't there was a desire to find museum professionals, and this was early on. Um, but it didn't really. I mean, whether it happened or not is something that I think people will find out. But um, so the museum was set up as a provincial museum of the Punjab, um, and connected to other museums in South India and Western India and Eastern India. And then in 1864, there was a an exhibition held in the Punjab. And again, similar format to exhibitions held in, in the West, um, the desire to show, show off what was, what was the economic potential of the area and what, the, what was available to be exploited, essentially. Um, and that, so at this time, you do get the museum expanding because after the, mu after the exhibition, the museum took over that building and it also acquired collections from the exhibition. And this is similar to what happened, what was going on, say, for the V&A and the South, and the, um, South Kensington Museums, because you had the same sort of process with the with the Great Exhibition. Um, so, so it's kind of on a on a smaller scale that these things were being almost replicated in the colony. Um, and also at that time, you you get um, you get the museum's most famous curator, I think, to to date is John Lockwood Kipling. He came over to Lahore in 1875. And so I think at that time you do get people who were museum-minded as such, as they say in museology, I guess. Um, and he came over and um, took over both the art school and the museum. And so he had he, he was responsible for both and he utilised these institutions, I think, to um, forward his own agendas, which were which were based in the arts and crafts movement that was going on in England. And there you get, uh, you, you do get the museum shifting and also getting a direction rather than just being curiosities put together and, and a, a guy heading this institution and kind of not being an expert in anything, but kind of trying to order things and, and display them. You do get someone with a vision. Um, and I think his interest was in was based in arts and crafts and art education in India. And so at this time you get that, but you also get additional collections of archaeology and national and natural history. Um, and all these things, I mean, there were, it's not to say there was wholesale um, order in the museum. There was still um, curiosities going on and other people still kind of people who were passing through Lahore would give would give their collections to the museum because it was seen as an ideal place to place them. Um, and I think, and this, um, at 1864 to 1893, the museum stayed in this building. And this is the museum that, um, that John Lockwood Kipling's son, Rudyard Kipling, um, epitomised in his, in his novel, Kim. Um, and that's where I think the, the Lahore Museum is in the Western imagination. So anyone who's read Kim or is interested in colonial literature would would know about Kim and uh, the Ajaiba, the Wonder House, as the museum was known. Um, and so at, it's at the end of, I think, Kipling's career at that time, the issues were still the same. There was lack of space, there was lack of organisation, 
too many things. And so in, in 1887, um, there, was a, there was a fund, a local fund, um, that set up a Jubilee institution. Um, and that's where the museum headed next. And that's the museum that you see currently. That's where it's at. It's, um, this, this building was constructed and the museum started, um, opened in 1893. And both the museum and the art school are still located there. Um, and so from, from then on, um, you did get, there was a, a progression towards professionalism and modernizing the museum as well. And then you also get, um, you get Indians entering the museum as well as um, the museum service. So they actually become, they're trained as curators, they're sent abroad to come back and, and replicate what they see and modernize the museum. And in the museum reports, you do see there's a, there's a shift towards modernizing things and, and concentrating on labels and getting rid of, um, of excess on di display. So this, this does happen, but then unfortunately in 1947, you get the partition of India. And, um, and that's when the museum split and 40% of the, of, the, of the collections were um, split between India and Pakistan. And so you get the present-day museum, as I talk about it, the post-colonial museum in Lahore, and the other half of the collection now resides in the Government Museum and Art Gallery in Chandigarh in India. So that's the museum. Interesting, interesting. Well, there, there is a lot to unpack there, particularly as uh, the museum uh, and all of... All of uh, reflects the uh, challenges of Pakistan sort of, of uh, responding to the partition. But before we get into that, uh, why don't we take our first break and when we come back more with Shayla Bhatti and uh, understanding uh, all of our museum practice through the lens of looking at this one institution, the Lahore Museum. So we will be back in a moment. Again, I want to mention that you can always reach me at carol.bossert at verizon.net or send me a tweet at, at newswrite. Uh, I always love to hear from my ever-expanding audience and it is so gratifying uh, to see the uh, numbers of, of uh, participants and listeners growing every month. Uh, so thank you very much for your support. We will be back in a moment. Stay tuned. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Carol Bossert established CB Services LLC because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content. And at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, 
boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com. Reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn or call her directly at 240-432-7712. Are you ready for an Anything Goes hour-long foray into politics, pop culture, and societal tribulations? Then look no further than Between the Synapse with host Mark Tobin. Each show features nationally or internationally prominent guests discussing topics that go beyond the usual daily news, sometimes even way beyond. It's a weekly fast-paced hour that you won't want to miss. Call in to join the party. Between the Synapse airs live every Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert. You're listening to Museum Life, and I am speaking today with Shayla Bhatti, the author of Translating Museums, a uh, counter-history of South Asian museology, focusing on uh, the Lahore Museum in Pakistan. And um, right before break, uh, Shayla was giving us a nice context with which to view the museum that started uh, as a colonial uh, a museum with strong British influences in, in uh, the 1850s. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Rama uh, Lakshmi was talking to us about uh, the the uh, history of Indian museums in, in general, of, of uh, the focus on uh, British colonialism and, and uh, looking at India and the area as a British colony and using museums as an educational tool. Of course, uh, and right before we went on break, we sort of stopped the history of the Lahore Museum because, of course, in Pakistan, uh, they uh, have had to deal with the uh, partitioning that happened in 1947, and and uh, that partitioning included uh, the museum's collecting uh, uh, collection, sending some of it uh, back to uh, India or to India for the first time, and uh, and then retaining some of it in Pakistan. And so, Shayla, I think that it would be uh, to me this is just a, a fascinating break and give would give us great insights as we were sort of talking about during. The break uh, about how the muse that must have been just a, a a situation that just rocked uh, the museum and uh, uh, having a, a significant part of its collection removed. Yeah. Uh, so um, 
as uh, all of Pakistan was dealing with this uh, with this change. So how how did the museum uh, handle it, and how are they they even handling it today? Um, I think it, it affected both sides of the border, so it's not just Pakistan. I think um, it it was a moment, and Punjab particularly was affected by it. So that's why the Lahore Museum in particular had had to um, had to partition its its own um, collections. Um, I think that it was an unfortunate time for the museum itself. I, um, that's what I that's that's the sense I got reading the records. Because within, at the 1940s, that sort of juncture, you do kind of get the museum taking off, as in it is becoming the public museum, as as, in, as it would be recognised in the West. So you did have um, the professionalism that people weren't, were missing before, and um, objects were being, even though it was still crowded and there was too too many objects, um, there, was, there, was a, there was a drive towards... Um, Actually, putting things into into a taxonomy that kind of worked. So people, it was you were getting more public coming in. You were also getting public education through um, lectures, and so the in school. I mean, there were school visits organised. So it was a museum that we would be able to recognise. And so I think, in partition, it was it just occurred at the wrong time. And for the Lahore Museum itself, it wasn't just the objects. I mean, they lost forty percent. It was also the fact that the museum people, I mean, these the professionals, they left. And so you were left with a depleted institution, really. Um, and Pakistan itself um, didn't have the resources to pick itself up. And so the museum really did come bottom of the list almost in, in post-partition. So, the, I mean, things were directed towards education at large, but also housing and getting the nation on its, I mean, getting, getting the nation going. So the museum itself wasn't a priority. Um, there were other issues that needed to be dealt with. So um, the museum itself, it took a long time, a long time. I think it was only in the 1960s that you really get the museum being given, um, someone paying attention to it. And that was through one guy, B.A. Qureshi, and he, he was a government official and he had an interest in the museum. And that's luckily, I mean, again, it's luck. It, luckily, he did take an interest. And then he invested in the museum, directed some funds towards it. And there was um, basically, I mean, the image you get, and this was from one of my um, informants, was that all the objects were just litters in the middle of galleries. And so that's where they had to start from. So reorganizing all this, and this is without an archive because lots of registers were lost. People really didn't know which accession number of an object belonged to what description or what even what some of these things were. So it's, um, it was a devastating time, I think, for the museum and also for the museum people. Well, I was struck um, in in your book. You talk about uh, when you were doing uh, re research there, you know, contemporary research, and mm -hmm. and speaking with um, uh, uh, I can't remember a, a, a colleague or or someone yeah. at the museum who who asked you one of the first questions she asked was had you first uh, visited uh, the uh, the uh, the uh, Museum in in yeah. India, where yeah. uh, much the forty percent uh, was in repository. Yeah. Um, that that's 
fascinating to me mm-hmm. that even after, you know, 70 years that there's still this, this connection that, you know, yeah. the collection is in total in these two places. Yes. Well, I, I think, I think it, was, it was Mrs. Nisret Ali, and she was the keeper of um, art at the time. And for her, because a large proportion of miniature paintings and, and any sort of paintings were taken. So um, I think she had a longing to kind of see some of those. And because she works with the collection, she did, I mean, she, was, she wanted to see it whole. And I think that's, that's the thing. It's a longing to have these things connected in some way and just because of the politics of the area this thing it it just isn't possible I mean people aren't allowed to meet so how collections can be united is impossible um unless it's through other means but it's again communication is it's not it's not easy between these two countries so um yeah so she she really did I mean she wanted it was a way of her connecting with the past and, and hoping that one day the collections would be together. And so I became the medium for her since I had maybe I had visited the Chandigarh Museum, which I hadn't at the time. Um, I could I could be that source of connecting the two two cultures, which were originally one. So it's 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 a longing. It's it's a it's an identity for these people as well. I mean, it's an I think it's an identity for the curators as well, because. They, it's a sense of pride that these things belong to us. Um, I'm not sure how much how much that kind of is reflected on the other side in in the Chandigarh Museum, because there it's a sense of these things belong to us. So we don't really yes they did have a life in Lahore, but there was never that sense of these things should be reconnected. There was I mean the curiosity was there to see what the Lahore Museum was like, but sending things back is another thing as we know with repatriation issues. So. It becomes that that whole politics. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, I well, one question that I that I wanted to to uh, to ask, and you you and I were beginning to talk about this on break, but just to be clear, uh, it sounds as if uh, even though you know this was started as a colonial museum to to uh, to help educate uh, the the um, uh, the the colonial um, uh, presence there, and uh, and also you know translating into Great Britain, uh, that very few objects were actually taken from the museum and sent back to Britain. As you know, when we're talking about repatriation, that's another level of repatriation. Mm-hmm. Um, if, um, partition? No, nothing back to Britain at that time. Um, because I think uh, by by that by the early 20, 20th century things had declined um, in terms of sending things back to the colonial centre. So um, you did have I mean earlier on in the history or through or through the history you do get um, you do get things being sent back um, or duplicates. So things that people were encouraged to. Um, um, either make a set of things or either collect two things. And then also with the onset of um, photography and um, replicas, replicas were made of things and they were sent back to Britain. Um, And some of these, I mean, a lot of these things, that's how you had the Great Exhibition happen. So a lot of these things um, initially were, were as trade objects, but then as museums were set up here, collections formed and so you have duplicates so say in the Lahore Museum you have similar objects in the V&A and in the British Museum 
And so Lahore, like, I mean, it wasn't exceptional that other museums in India did the same and in other colonies they did the same. Things were sent back to to Britain. Um, but that's that kind of peters out later on. And also um, when I was reading the archives, you do kind of see... Um, there was there was a huge mass of things, and even on even in Britain, people didn't know what to do with them, and they ended up in stores, and lots of things just. I mean, that's where they were left. Nothing. They didn't actually get to an exhibition or to a to a museum. So there was an exchange, and at the beginning there was a lot of exchange, but that that kind of petered out. And also, I mean, people like um, John Lockwood Kipling. He was he he didn't he felt that the original object should be kept in India. He didn't want to send the, the original objects, which sometimes the museum here demanded or the curators demanded that they should be. So you don't really, I mean, it was up to, I think it was also up to the individual person who was in charge of the museum as to what they wanted to do or how, how, and how willing they were to entertain sending things back. So you do get, I mean, it wasn't just the object, but you got it replicated, say, as a, as a photograph or as a print. or um, so, so objects kind of, and there was the object, but then you get other mediums that it wasn't back in. So you get it textually as well. I mean, in journals, you, you, get, you get lots of journals cropping up at the time, especially when with the arts and crafts movement, there was an interest in design. So um, there, were, there were lots of um, prints made, to, to show the design of things, so you you get you get there was um you get the you get the object itself and then extras being sent back. So there was yeah. an exchange. Uh, it also seems that it that at this time, and you bring this out in the book, you know, so many things were going on about at the same time. You had, uh, you know, a, a, a retching of a nation uh, into two uh, nations. You had then nation building uh, in uh, in Pakistan, sort of creating uh, a new national identity. At the same time, you had the museum. Maybe you know, obviously, it was was low down on the priority list at the beginning but there was this sense of professionalism how does you know in looking back now and reading the records how how do you sort of summarize how the museum uh, either supported or reflected this new uh, sort of new creation of a new national narrative okay um, I think that's 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 quite a tricky question to answer because I think the museum still hasn't and in a way I see that as a positive because um, I don't think the museum, if the museum did reflect strictly the national ideology of Pakistan then they would have lost a lot of their, a lot of their collections and a lot of, um, a lot of the culture that actually makes makes Lahore and makes Pakistan because it isn't just an Islamic state and it isn't just a, a it, there isn't just a Muslim culture. So um, if you if you look if you actually look at all the collections that are in the in the museum, I mean there's there's a general gallery, there's an Islamic arts gallery, there's a Gandhara gallery and um, an Indus gallery, and then there's a Jain Jain section um, and then the ethnological sections. I mean, all these things contain a, vi a variety of cultures, and they're not just that. It, it, it really isn't just a Muslim nation. I mean, you got you have the independence movement gallery or the coins 
um, coin section which reflects partially um, just Pakistan and post-independence, but um, the majority of the collections in the museum, they're still of other cultures, um, what would be called other cultures. And I think they allow a visitor to the museum to actually um, think about what constitutes their culture. So is it, I mean, who am I, where am I, and what's being reflected here? And it's offered up for them to own it and say, yes, we, we did have... The Gandhara, the Gandhara civilization was part of us. The, the Harappa and the Mohenjo-Daro, they are part of us. Because in other aspects of society, this isn't reflected. I mean, it isn't discussed. And you've had different eras in Pakistan's um, political history where everyone has their own agenda of what the nation should, nation, national identity or the nation should be reflected in. But luckily, somehow... Um, and I mentioned this in the book, is because of the lack of interest in the museum, all these things have, have, have survived. And so the heterogeneity of Pakistani culture um, has survived. And I mean, the museum is a rare place, and this is, this is a rare place where, where you can see all this. So, um, so, so I think, I think that's, that's somehow the museum represents a truer version of what Pakistani history and identity should be than, than say, the national ideology. I think that's very, very interesting. And you mentioned there are several times in in the book, and I'm you've said it, you have said it elegantly in the book, and I'm only paraphrasing, in that by um, and for whatever reason the museum has not been sanitized. Yes. yes. And uh, you know some of the photographs that you've included in the book, of course, some are very historic, of about you know sort of the older cases and and perhaps some more traditional uh, methods of display. Uh, and we'll get back to you know how that that builds uh, certain assumptions in in Western eyes. But yes. because of that, that does li- allow people to see the museum as that treasure trove of, of yes. uh, breadth of culture, which I uh, uh, sometimes, I, as you say, can, can uh, be um, purposefully or inadvertently uh, removed in the, uh, the quest for creating a, a clear and concise narrative uh, mm-hmm. for, for the museum. I'm wondering, just before we go to break, could you just share a little bit about what is one of the more um, uh, uh, masterpieces of the uh, of the museum, and that is of the the fasting Buddha. Yes, yes. I mean uh, that's that's the piece that the museum is very proud of, and um, it, it's. I mean it's it sits there in the Gandhara Gallery, and it it, it is. It, I mean it is a masterpiece. So it's um, it's it's one of. Um, one of the, I mean, one of the few where you do see the Buddha in, in the state of achieving enlightenment or almost achieving enlightenment, and it's a harrowing image of of a person starving themselves almost. But um, um, it's again, it's 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 an image that you kind of think. I, I mean, I often wondered is what what do people see because they're not actually they're not they're not taught anything at school about the gandhara or anything about buddha as such i mean it might be mentioned in passing and so i mean it it becomes a curiosity and and therefore they're fascinated by it. who who is this person and um they i mean they do have they do understand it but it's just um 
they 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 admire it as as a piece of art almost because they're fascinated by who made this and who was it and and that kind of is evoked in them by not I mean they're they're not told who this is they aren't he's not placed in history as such I mean there are labels but there's so much open space around this around this object and I think um, that's what keeps this museum going these not just masterpieces for people who understand or have an inkling about what an art piece is or what a masterpiece is but ordinary people and I think that's something we'll go on to Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, we are going to take a brief break, and when we come back, uh, Sheila and I are going to talk a little bit about the audience uh, for this museum, and uh, then, of course, get into a little bit of the uh, of the Western non-Western uh, uh, controversy that uh, is taking place in museums today. So, when we come back, more with Sheila Bati. Please uh, stay tuned. We have so much more to talk about. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Carol Bossert established CB Services, LLC, because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content, and at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com, reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn, or call her directly at 240-432-7712. Up Close with Chris Tinney is now on Voice America Variety. Every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, Chris brings you the thought leaders, activists, and socially responsible entrepreneurs taking action for the environment doing business in a new way and helping the underprivileged call in or listen in every tuesday at 5 p.m pacific 8 p.m eastern and learn how the small decisions you make today have a big impact on our small planet in the future tune in to up close with chris tinney on the voice america variety channel Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bosser at verizon.net. 
Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. I'm Carol Bossard, and I'm here talking today with Shayla Bhatti about the Lahore Museum. And uh, Shayla, actually, I, I'd like you to repeat uh, the a bit of the conversation you and I were having at break because I think it is so very important. Uh, one of the observations that you made in the book uh, is that in this museum, there is not the timeline of history, uh, mm -hmm. either you know before uh, the partitioning or after, or there is not that sort of curatorial voice that says this is how things happened, uh, or uh, or leads you from gallery to gallery. There is not that that spine that, for many museums today, is sort of the holy grail of interpretation. Uh, mm -hmm. And um, I, and I'm wondering if you could just uh, share some of your observations and thought. About, uh, about that. I think that's, I mean, that's the reason, one of the reasons why I got interested in colonial museums. Um, one, of, one of the museums that I like here in England is the Pitt Rivers, and I remember being taught that that was an anomaly because um, this is where you get a sense of how things were and how things aren't. But that's where I went and I actually enjoyed the visit. I, I mean, the curiosity element does, um, does arouse, and I mean, it's 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 a cliche, but it, it does. And going to a museum where you know actually from room one to two to ten, I, I know what's going to happen. We're gonna go from the past to the modern. Um and you're you're almost given too much information. Um your imagination isn't isn't there. You're not you're not actually exploring how I mean that's what we should be doing. We should be interacting and as I was saying to you, we're not we're not robots, we are humans, so we have emotions. We should we should ha there should be an interaction with the object and almost exploring it how how almost um, the collectors were I think originally when collectors collected these things there was more than a reason more than just passing on um, what this is they, they they were they were interested in it for a reason and um, that's 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 something that you do see in these museums that are still kind of um, I think within within Western museology, they would be they're, they're not they're not functioning. I mean, people would say they're not functioning right, and still you do get people saying there's um, you know these are just dust houses. They're not looked after properly. The objects aren't right. There's not enough lighting, um, and these are I mean yes, these are factors. But the overall I mean the overall success of the museum is that people are visiting and they do visit and they have a great time there. And they keep coming back and they remember what they saw and how they felt. I mean, we have senses, so um, objects and human beings, there's a connection. And it doesn't always have to be about um, education. So um, that's not to say that people don't don't get that. I think they, they do have a sense of um, I'm to learn something. But they also remember these things for the feeling they had. And they're very strong, these feelings. And I think that's that's the... That's something that came across, um, that people had a, had a sense of um, how they felt when they were in that room or they were looking at an object. Um, there wasn't a sense of, you know, there is, I mean, there is that, no, that kind of thing. Everyone, I mean, everyone says it. We, we go to a museum actually on board within a certain amount of time. That didn't crop up as often over there. So there was hardly anyone who kind of said, actually, I was bored here. 
um, there weren't the, the complaining element wasn't there. So something's going right. Yes, yes. So let's uh, just so clearly people are attending, you know, coming to the museum today. Can you tell us just a little bit more about who is coming? What percentage are local people versus uh, curious tourists or or uh, 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 foreign visitors? I think sort of um, in, in the Pakistan context, tourism is, is at its lowest um, that it has been. I mean, the worst was after 9-11, but um, you do see more, more foreigners around. Um, but it's still not, I mean, it's not back to how it used to be in the 60s and 50s. So, um, it, the, the, I mean, the predominant um, visitor is, is um, say, low, lower to middle class Um and they they are either I mean there's two two main groups um, they're either from um, Lahore itself or they're on visits um, day visits from districts outside or other places in Pakistan so they're visiting Lahore um, and the museum drops into a, a guide a city guide that they go through so they see certain things in in the city and the museum usually is one of them um, and that that's um, most of them. Um, come in family groups as well, so you'd never, you'd, you'd hardly ever see someone visiting individually. It's it's just not, just not the done thing over there. So usually you can get, I mean, the uh, groups from five to fifteen, um, and they can be uh, they can be educated as such to the villagers who come along. But um, that's something that I I don't really, I mean, I don't adhere to that you have to be educated to visit the museum to yeah. get something out of it. So. Um, that sort of middle class um, um, vision of a, of a visitor that we have in the West doesn't, or the European Museum, doesn't really um, hold up there because usually that the, the the equivalent over there will not visit the museum because it's somewhere that the lower classes go or the uneducated go to have amusement. So they just go there for amusement and have fun. So for that reason, they won't go. Um, unless they're kind of bringing foreigners, so they, they will bring it because they understand. You know, they must visit a museum before they leave the hall. So. Well, you know that that is fascinating on so many levels. But the I and and you have a wonderful description of a fellow. Um, I guess he was um, a taxi driver or something. Uh, and I I I probably won't pronounce this uh, correctly, but Mr. Ali. Right. And, uh, you know, a self-taught individual. And certainly here in the U.S., we have uh, the opposite is true. Uh, Our museums try as we might uh, still remain sort of an elitist bastion, particularly art museums have such a difficult time encouraging people uh, to come because they Mm -hmm. feel like, I don't know, you have to take a quiz. uh, Mm -hmm. And 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 that's real. Uh, They they truly believe that these places are not for them. Uh, so clearly, the Lahore Museum is doing something incredibly right uh, by our Western standards. Uh, if they are places for families of of people of uh, of of limited means, perhaps limited education, who come to the museum to expand their education, and so and what's so bad about finding entertainment uh, and uh, sharing beautiful things with one's family and friends yes i mean you had this it i mean even in the 19th century you had this the recreation i mean the rational recreation so 
it's not something that wasn't part of when museums were becoming public institutions. So this was, I mean, it's one way that, that people were brought in to come and visit museums and exhibitions. But it's over the years within within the West, we have slowly abandoned that. And we want to we want to create this, a, a more scientific experience. So it should be more about education and, and formal education rather than the informal. So um, the distance between the objects and the person has increased. So we're not really we're not really meant to feel anything. We're not really meant to be enjoying the object as such. We just we need to know where what it stands for and what its cultural value is almost as an art object in museums. So that doesn't necessarily happen in, in South Asia. And that's something that um, curators there, ever since colonial museums um, had had public visitors, they've grappled with because they thought the, muse the, the, the people are getting it wrong. They're not understanding it. So that's where the Wonder House element comes in. So they were just left to do that. Um, it was a negative thing. And that's something that, persists and that's something I mean even as an institution and the curators there they still have that it's a sense of shame that these people come here we need the educated visitor is something that they will often um, often say to me you know that these people aren't getting it right and that's a shame because I, I think I think they need to understand their their visitors more um, but they're almost being held back by by Western museology because it's not really liberating them. And so the new museology was supposed to liberate, but it hasn't because it doesn't really account for account for other ways that museums can be. And if there were other museum models, then then the people working there would have a have a greater pride in in what they are, and, and not just kind of feel that they need to follow the Western model. So even as an audience, there they shouldn't be just one way of seeing or experiencing a museum. I think that is uh, an incredibly powerful statement that you've just made, and mm -hmm. and uh, and it, and is made uh, throughout your work. Your your uh, the book is a, a witness to that. Uh, mm -hmm. And I and I wonder then about. Um, uh, certainly the proliferation, as we said before, there are many uh, museums being built in, in Southeast Asia, new museums, you know, yes. brand new. Uh, uh, I've uh, been doing quite a bit of work in the Middle East and, mm -hmm. and every, any, everyone from, uh, you know, the, the Emirates to Qatar and certainly in yes. Saudi Arabia now, uh, they are building from scratch uh, museums mm -hmm. and they are looking to the West, uh, both mm -hmm. with uh, museum professionals as well as designers uh, and even the people that tell them about who their audience is and who their audience is supposed to be are all mm -hmm. from from the West. And uh, mm -hmm. and I I that's from, based on what we've been talking about today, perhaps as museum professionals we are doing uh, uh, an inherent injustice yes. uh, to these okay. people that we're trying to uh, to serve. So how how might uh, we as as um, you know global museum professionals uh, adhere to our philosophy of museums uh, better? I think I think. Um it's almost the museums that are cropping up in the Middle East. I mean, it's it's almost it's almost as if they're they're cultural icons. So it's it's the name that's selling. So hopefully the name will attract foreigners and uh, or the local people because it's it's a big name. Um, but that doesn't really take account what the local people need 
or what the local institution should be about. Because, I mean, in my research, the museum was actually, it was transported there. So it's, it's, not, it's not an indigenous institution. So rather than thinking there is just one museum out there, we need to look at, there are different, way, different museums, but also different ways of running a museum and different provisions that a museum should make. So I think that's taking that into account, and I guess that's where I would like to see um, ethnographic museology also going, is not just uh, looking at other or the other museum, still within the framework of, of ethno, um, ethnocentric museums, but to think of other ways and actually accepting that, that maybe that's, that's, how, that's how museums should develop. So other models and other, other ways of other audiences also. So expanding the field a bit more. Well, I certainly uh, can, can hope on behalf of uh, all of us that the Lahore, the Lahore Museum, uh, through your work and through the work of others, can become uh, a, an alternative uh, model or, you know, an even alternative is a terrible word. It, it sounds as I think if a it's, dialogue would be nice. Though. Yes. A dialogue yes. between everyone. I mean, it, rather than there being one or the other, a dialogue, um, that, that would be best. Yes, I, I, I agree with you. And, and so uh, with that, we are going to be closing the show today. I think that that leaves us with a very uh, thought-provoking um, uh, statement for the weekend and uh, to continue on in our discussions, uh, uh, particularly with museum studies programs and how we yeah. proliferate uh, that, that sense of professionalism. Shayla, I cannot thank you enough for being on the show today. Uh, I know you're in London, and so the time difference is significant and I appreciate your time. No worries. Thank you very much, Carol. It's been very enjoyable. Thank you. And we will be back next week with another edition of Museum Life. Remember, uh, I always love to hear from uh, my, uh, my guests, my former guests, and all of my listeners. Let me know what you think about the show and what we need to be talking about. Until next week, this is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net.